0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Midwest Hemp Council audio podcast. I'm your host, Jason Dozier, and today on the podcast, we're going to talk with Jonna Simmons. Jonna is a partner attorney with Roper's Majeski Law Firm, and we're going to talk tribal law today. That's going to be pretty interesting, so let's get to it. Jonna, how you doing this afternoon?
1: I'm doing great. How about
0: you? Doing fantastic. Thanks so much for being with us. Looking forward to this conversation because we've not had a conversation like this on the Midwest Hemp Council podcast. So this ought to be a fun one. But um, let's talk about, first of all, um, geographically, you're located in Detroit, but you uh, also do a lot of work in California. But you're licensed with a lot of different tribal jurisdictions. And that's why this is going to be interesting. Tell us what that all about and what that means.
1: Sure. Um, So yeah, you got it. I'm based in Detroit. Um, I'm licensed in Michigan and grew up in Michigan, but I also have a California license. So my office is out there, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to the tribal jurisdictions, um, and I do get this question a lot, um, each tribe has their own setup for how you're able to practice in their court. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I refer to having different tribal licenses, what I'm really saying is that I have uh, almost like a state bar license to practice law. Um, but it's the unique tribal license to practice in front of those tribal courts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, every, every tribe um, has its own setup in that regard and uh because uh you, as you mentioned they are sovereign nations
0: well I think uh, uh, to a lot of us uh, you know you'd have to excuse our ignorance but to a lot of us the the closest we've come to something like this would would be watching like Yellowstone and <laughs> and, and seeing that yes we know there's a certainly different law enforcement and that sort of thing but it's certainly interesting uh, to be able to to dive into this uh, a little bit so tell us a, a little bit about your background and what what led you to this uh, so we can get up sure. to that Point.
1: Sure. So um, I always disclose this. Um, I'm not Native American. What mm-hmm. drew me to this area of law is kind of uh, just a little personal story that my grandmother had a, sm- a home in the Smoky Mountains near the Cherokee Reservation. Mm-hmm. And um, at the top of her driveway is an old marker that continued up through the mountains, marking the Trail of Tears. So as a kid, I learned about um, you know, what had happened to the Cherokee and other tribes when they were pushed um, off their ancestral lands. And um, you know, also as a kid, we'd go to uh, the Cherokee reservation. And I think probably the, you know, the, the fanfare, the lure and the interest of colors. And, sure. and they always had somebody dressed uh, like a traditional chief. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just intriguing to me. But for whatever reason... Um, the Trail of Tears story always stuck with me. And by the time I got to law school out in Rhode Island, um, I actually got my law school to teach federal Indian law because I wanted to learn it. And it just kind of continued um, from there. So um, that's how I got into the area of tribal law, um, also federal Indian law. And I'll make a little, um, because you said there's like, People ask these questions but just for the audience federal Indian law is the body of law that the feds have whether it's statutes or common law that regulate what tribes can and can't do in their jurisdiction and basically sets rules for tribes Mm -hmm. Um, tribal law is internal tribal law so the tribes themselves their own laws so um sometimes you'll hear those terms um mixed or interchanged and they really are separate bodies of law but yeah that's and, how I got into it.
0: And and when you say you practice uh, tribal law what are you doing what what what's the actual practice like what type of cases are these domestic cases are these cases against the federal government or in what what type of practice is it?
1: Okay so when I'm speaking of tribal law, um, it could be take for example, um a tribal enrollment commission um wants to amend their ordinance to include a new complaint process for enrollment proceedings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I could come in and help with something like that. Okay. Um, it could be a a dispute between a branch of um government within a tribe. Um, I've had a situation in the past where there was a tribal council versus a tribal chair, and they were in dispute over what the tribe's constitutional powers allowed them. Mm -hmm. And so I was representing tribal council in that case, and it was a case in the tribal court. So it can range from everything internally to, um, there are a, a number of boutique firms out there that that specialize in really massive um, lawsuits involving, it could be land and water rights. It Mm -hmm. could be issues involving um, trust money or funding from, you know, the federal government. So um, it can span (laughs) quite a, quite a variety of, of, of cases or projects, I should say. Right.
0: Well, that that's very interesting. Just the topic in and of itself is is, is extremely interesting. But um, but let's let's take it, uh, I guess, a little more in the direction of the uh, the point of the podcast, which is the Midwest Hemp Council. Um, of course, the uh, the Native Americans and cannabis and hemp go way back, a long history. And as you said, there are standard laws for all of the tribes, regardless, um, set forth by the federal government. So you know, part of that are the, the cannabis laws the hemp laws but the the tribes now as sovereign governments are starting to uh, to make their own laws for regulation of cannabis and hemp so can you kind of fill us in and let us know what they're doing or if they're on the same uh, you know plane as the uh, the rest of the United States
1: yeah it's a really really interesting um, You have a number of tribes, now with hemp it's a little different because of the farm bill. You have a number of tribes that are creating their own laws and getting approval from the USDA so that they can cultivate industrial hemp. And um, so there's there's that aspect Um, on the marijuana. I mean, since we're talking cannabis in general, the marijuana side is interesting because of course it's not legal at the federal level But there are a number of tribes that are creating their own laws, somewhat like the states, Mm -hmm. um, to legalize uh, the use of, we'll just say cannabis in general, Mm -hmm. on their tribal lands. And, um, you know, they're setting up regulatory systems for how that looks. Um, Not every tribe is engaged in it, but it's increasing um, the number of tribes that are. And um, it's really exciting to see. And this is, this is some perspective for the audience. Um, a lot of times when I talk about uh, doing tribal or federal Indian law with people, They'll say, oh, casino stuff, (laughs) because everybody assumes that tribes, you know, are, are, that's what they do. Right.
0: Is there going to be a profit for them?
1: Right. And the reality is that very few tribes actually... Generate significant revenue revenue from their casino operations mm-hmm. uh, or gaming operations. Um, some do tremendously well at it because they're located in a you know a place that's really conducive to drawing a good you know crowd mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a number of tribes don't, and so this is such the the cannabis, the hemp, and the and the marijuana is not only attractive for a number of tribes that maybe they're in remote areas, but they have good farmland or resources for cultivating, um, and producing. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's going to what you were saying earlier. I mean, it's plant medicine. It's traditional to many tribes and, um, many tribes still have a medicine man or a medicine woman and, um, the idea that it's, it's something very unique to indigenous culture is really, is really an important and beautiful thing, and um, so it's exciting to see that not only are they resurrecting something that's part of their culture, but they're also finding ways to uh, create revenue for important things like elder housing or youth programs. Um, you know, roads, schools, medical um, facilities—all of those things that tribes are, you know, looking to fund, just like any other government.
0: And when you speak of housing, one of the other things that they're looking at doing with it is also the using hempcrete to uh, to create some of that housing.
1: Exactly. Um, so I am uh, an attorney for one of the uh, tribal marijuana commissions out in South Dakota. And the idea of having hempcrete housing is so attractive to them because of the properties um, of hempcrete and heating and cooling and the sustainability. And, and um, yeah, they're just really excited to have something that they can put together that is, uh, you know, earth-friendly, and um, can withstand, uh, well, South Dakota is not, not the easiest of climates, right? Mm-hmm. But hempcrete is, is really showing up. And um, I know there are tribes that are digging into that um, so that they can create housing, very necessary housing oftentimes. <laughs>
0: Well, and and the tribes that, let's say, are located, for instance, in a state that has legalized marijuana, like um, uh, Colorado, are they just automatically under that umbrella already, for instance, moving forward with with, with their laws versus a state or or tribes that are in a state that do not have uh, legalized marijuana?
1: So that's a really great question, and it's an important topic. Um, with an Indian country, at least the folks that are getting into cannabis, because tribes typically want to uh, use their own sovereignty and jurisdiction, just like, uh, you know, any other government entity or sovereign nation would. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of a tribe coming in and being forced to submit to state law is never the first choice, so to speak,
0: <laughs> Sure. Um,
1: you know, it does happen. And so let's say um, in Michigan where I am, um, you know, Michigan is legalized for um, uh, medical and recreational and some tribes were exploring, you know, what are, what are going to be our next steps? Well, one of the question comes up is, do you try to get the state license? Mm-hmm. Or do you just exercise your sovereignty and create your own laws and your own system for regulating um, cannabis, mm. you know, on tribal land? Right. And so um, from what I am hearing and the discussions among tribal leaders and folks that are in this area, and and I'm referring to an organization, um, the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association, Um check that out, uh, for your audience. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's really a lot of talk about using and leveraging tribal sovereignty to move forward in this industry. And so, um, really creating your own laws and being able to regulate it for your people and your community, it's really important for tribes. And so, you know, it's, it's not to say that, Tribes won't uh, get a license, a state license, or maybe a tribal member won't go that route. Mm -hmm. I mean, oftentimes they do, Um, but there's really something special in tribes being able to create, you know, their own regulatory system for it. And Mm -hmm. frankly, I think tribes are poised to do better than than states and others that are looking to regulate it because it means something more to them, and um, you know there's a there's a smaller number of licenses. Uh, there's just there's just a lot of advantages I think that tribes have um, when it comes to regulating cannabis.
0: And when a state like Michigan makes it legal, both uh, medical and recreational. Is a tribe is it uh, is it automatically then legal on um, uh, you know in their jurisdictions or do they have to approve it for you know the people that are, are living uh, within their you know within their tribe to be able to for instance just just use the the products?
1: Yeah, it wouldn't automatically be approved. Okay. It's really difficult because some tribal reservations are really they call them checkerboarded mm-hmm. with you like, you know, when people think of a tribal reservation, you think of, you know, this area that the tribe pretty much controls everything within it. But the reality is there are a lot of reservations where non-tribal um, individuals or entities own land mm-hmm. within that reservation.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, mm-hmm. you know, it creates some interesting, like, <laughs> you know, right. um, jurisdictional issues. And mm-hmm. that's a whole another area of federal uh, Indian well, law.
0: And, and then, um, and then on, the, on the other side of that, not to cut you off, but in a state like, say, uh, you know, uh, Indiana, where it's not legal, if there were a tribe here that had a jurisdiction, would they be able to make it legal on their own? Or is that forbidden because the state has not made it legal. In other words, do they have the choice to say, in our area, if the state's made it legal, we can choose to not make it legal or vice versa?
1: Yeah, they they have the choice. And I can tell you in South Dakota, where I represent one of the tribes, um, their marijuana commission, uh, the state of South Dakota does not legalize recreational, but the tribe has. And so on their land, and there's a few other tribes in South Dakota that have done the same, on their land, you can use recreationally and you can purchase recreationally. Okay. But the moment you take that off of tribal land mm-hmm. and you cross into state you know, land, that's a different story. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we talk about is being mindful if you're a dispensary on tribal land in a state that does not um has not legalized cannabis or i should say marijuana mm-hmm. um you really have to be mindful that you know you might have people purchasing product that's taking it outside you know into an area that it's not legal it really creates some some interesting uh, right. jurisdictional issues sure. um and of course you know tribes aren't looking to upset what's happening within the state It's more of, um, you know, what's what's appropriate and good for the tribal community and the decisions that the tribe makes for its people might not be the same as a state makes for its citizens. Mm -hmm. So that's where you get um, sometimes this difference between what's happening in a state and a tribe. The tribe will make its decision. You know, for its members and its
0: community, right? And do most of the tribes in general, or I, I, obviously they're all individual uh, in their 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 laws and their their thinking, but do most of them see the benefit of legalization?
1: Um, you know, it's hard to say. I think in some ways, um, like I'd love to say yes, because the tribes that I've been around are all talking about it, and you know, it's it's an avenue for much needed revenue it's plant medicine it's Mm -hmm. honoring you know the plant Um, but at the same time i've also heard of tribes that just don't want to go that route for their community Mm -hmm. and they don't want that you know around their youth and and, um, you know, that's a, that's a decision that each tribe needs to make for their people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it can go both ways. Um, I guess by default, the fact that I'm around tribes that, <laughs> that are pursuing it, you know, right. that's kind of what I'm used to, but there are definitely tribes out there that don't want to go that route. And, you know, that's their decision to make.
0: Right. Excellent. Well, we're speaking with Jana Simmons. Jonna is a partner attorney with Roper's Majeski Law Firm and, uh, Jonna, uh, uh, any other topics we want to hit on here before we uh, close it out today?
1: Um, I think we've hit on a lot of great topics. <laughs> very, <laughs> interesting, to very interesting, very you interesting. Know, absolutely. Yeah, I'm really excited to to chat about it. And maybe one other thing that's worth mentioning because mm-hmm. I know you have an audience of of listeners that are likely Mm non-tribal that might have an opportunity or might be looking for an opportunity to work with tribes. And I can tell you, um, there are, there are a number of tribes that are looking for, um, business partners that may be non-tribal, um, to assist them and help them develop, you know, going forward. And, um, the only thing that I always tell non-tribal um, folks is, you need to understand tribal jurisdiction and sovereignty if you're going to get into those relationships, and they can be wonderfully rewarding. And I love the idea of, you know, helping. Um, indigenous people and the culture and bringing all of that back and so there's there's a tremendous upside to those business relationships but you also want to understand you know a lot of times tribes will say well if you if you want an agreement with us that's fine but if there's an issue that comes up you're going to be in our tribal court and i i don't know that that non-tribal folks are always they always know what to expect (laughs) with that so i always encourage you know, I think there's wonderful opportunity there, but you need to be, you need to be mindf- mindful and make a good business decision, um, obviously, whatever you're going to do.
0: And if they wanted to get involved, and that's, again, a very fascinating uh, a thought, but if they wanted to get involved, would it be best to approach the, the, the tribes individually or to approach someone like you, a law firm that represents the tribes? How is their uh, best way of approach?
1: Um, You know, I don't know that there is a best way. I think either way can be good. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a number of conferences um, that, you know, spring up over uh, the year that we're seeing more and more non-tribal businesses appearing um, to network with tribal leadership, Mm -hmm. to answer questions, to get information. Um, The networking is probably the best way to go about it. Um, you know, I'm certainly able to answer questions and help when it comes to uh, jurisdictional issues and business relationships and whatnot. I don't represent every tribe in the country, mm-hmm. and I have had occasion to represent non-tribal, you know, entities that do want to do business with tribes, and we've been able to to build successful relationships in that regard. But um, I mentioned the ICIA. Um, I'd encourage... Uh, people to check that out. There's a huge conference coming up, um, RES, RES, Reservation Economic Summit in Vegas beginning of April. Um, ICAA folks are going to be talking there about uh, tribal cannabis um, and again, great networking opportunities. Um, yeah, it's really just, uh, it's really just uh, you know, getting yourself out there and, um, it doesn't mean you can't approach a tribe on it, but the networking and the referrals are probably, um,
0: the best bet. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, if folks want to get in touch with you or get in more information about you or Ropers Majeski, where would they go to do that?
1: Um, you could shoot me an email at J A N A dot at Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, at ropers.com or just jump on Ropers Majeski, um, the, the firm's website. Uh, we have our cannabis practice up there. We have the Native American, uh, you know, section as well. My bio is up there. Be happy to chat with anybody, answer any questions, um, and, uh, you know, looking forward to, to helping, helping folks.
0: Fantastic. Once again, Jonna Simmons. Jonna, you've been a wealth of information, an interesting topic, and one that hopefully we'll be able to get you back on board here and continue to discuss in the future.
1: I'd love to. Yeah, I appreciate it.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon.
1: Okay, take care. Have a great
0: day. Uh, All right. And thank you again so much. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Midwest Hemp Council audio podcast. I'm your host, Jason Dozier. And until next time, we'll see you then. So long, everybody.